0: What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation.
1: From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar.
0: The personal life is dead in Russia. History has killed it. I can see how you might hate me. I hate everything you say, but not enough to kill you for it.
2: I've got to remember that little chestnut the next time we fight about a movie, Josh. Well, maybe this week, Adam. <laughs> you wouldn't dare, would you? The late Omar Sharif there as Dr. Yuri Shivago, with Tom Courtney in that scene from the David Lean epic, Dr. Shivago. We've got a special blind spotting review of Shivago coming up, plus the top five small moments in big movies. That, plus massacre theater, and much more. I hate everything you say, Josh, but not enough to kill you for it. Ahead on film spotting. Film Spotting is once again presented by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. And there's a couple titles we get to mention this week, Josh, and I love it when I can recommend titles that I can actually recommend because I've seen them and I like the films we start with Ernst Lubitsch to be or not to be shocking and scandalous when it was released at the height of World War II. Lubitsch's satire of Nazism is now remembered rightly as one of the funniest bravest noblest most modern comedies old Hollywood ever produced a tribute to laughter and dark times and a true essential also the Queen of Versailles playing now over at MUBI few recent Sundance documentaries have thrilled us like Lauren Greenfield's shrewd Funny, humane, blisteringly ironic, but not cheap. It's as clear eyed and perceptive a portrait of the American dream in action as any offered up during the Great Recession.
1: It was the winner of Sundance's 2012 directing award. I can not only recommend The Queen of Versailles, but it was on my 2012 top 10 list movie also has a Peter O'Toole double bill. For that most regal of actors, there are two left-field cult classics and his fifth and sixth Oscar nominations. First, The Ruling Class, in which O'Toole plays an eccentric aristocrat who, to the dismay of his family, believes he's the second coming of Christ. Then The Stuntman, in which O'Toole, as a maniacal film director, just might be the devil. So I haven't seen
2: The Ruling Class and really need to, but three out of four— Ain't bad for this segment, The Stuntman, also recommended by me.
1: Quite impressive. Everyday movies curators introduce a new title, and you have thirty days to watch it. That means there's always thirty wonderful films to enjoy, all for only four ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of film spotting can try movie free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's mubi.com slash filmspotting.
2: You're listening to Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's good to be back after a little break. And it turns out we actually needed the time off because the movie we're discussing, Dr. Shivago, is actually two weeks long. <laughs> you beat me to it. <laughs> Big thanks, though, to Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps, and Genevieve Kosky for taking over the show, a dissolved takeover of film spotting, probably something they never would have had time for while the late great site was up and running. But in the current age of the dissolved Aspera, as Keith coined it, we do hope to have them join us more often. Let's be honest. I think you just like the idea of taking more time off. Hey, you say potato, I say vacation. Scott, of course, has been a part of our annual Best of the Year Countdown shows for years and is familiar to many listeners but we hadn't had Keith on for a while, and it definitely was great to bring Genevieve into the fold, filling in for Tasha, who was originally scheduled. She filled in very capably. I love the chemistry between her and Scott. And actually, I love to hear the chemistry between Genevieve
1: and Tasha. That's a combination I'm hoping to have on film spotting here in the near future. Yeah, that would be great to hear. I heard Genevieve a lot on the Dissolve podcast, of course. When I guested on there, I didn't get to be part of a panel with her, but I did go up against her in their game segment, 30 Seconds to Sell. And of course, you lost. I beat her. Oh, wow. Yeah. So just (laughs) wanted to put that out
2: there. Well, later in the show, we'll share our top five small moments in big movies, an archive top five that will freshen up a bit with some of our favorite small moments from David Lean's very big Dr. Zhivago.
1: But first, it took a pork tenderloin dinner, a couple of beers, and root beer floats, but we did it. Adam and I finally managed to power our way through Lean's epic. No. Most widely acclaimed novel of our generation, Metro Goldwyn Mayer
0: presents David Lean's film of Boris Pasternak's Doctor Zhivago, a spectacle of armies changing history, the epic of a grand romantic age giving way to a new and violent order, the drama of young lovers, far from the bitter guns of war.
2: Despite not being widely appreciated by critics upon its release, Dr. Zhivago's reputation as one of the all-time great epic romances is indisputable. Among its bona fides, it was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won five. It sits at 39th on the AFI list of the 100 Greatest American Films Ever. And according to Wikipedia, when you adjust for inflation, it's the eighth highest grossing film of all time. People adore this movie. People like my mother, who in 1965, as a young teen, saw it at the theater, complete with overture and intermission, adore this movie. Many film-spotting listeners adore this movie. And we heard from them after our 10th anniversary show back in March, when I listed it as one of my top five blind spots, only to have it ultimately dismissed, mainly by you, Josh. Omitted from the final cut of movies we promised to devote a discussion to, what swayed our cynical hearts We'll get to that in a moment. First, I thought we should hear from at least one listener who definitely does not adore David Lean's story of unrequited, requited, unrequited again love set against the backdrop of World War I and the Russian Revolution. About Dr. Shivago, wrote Robert Lewis from Damascus, Maryland, don't watch it. I did several years ago, and I still wish I could have my three and a half hours of life back. First of all, it was boring. Second, the costuming and cinematography are outstanding, but that does not make a great or even good movie. Third, Did I mention it is boring? Fourth, one would hope that a film of this length would lead to something, but there is no real payoff. Fifth, yes, it has stakes. It is so stake-heavy that one could choke on the stakes and is far too heavy-handed. Sixth, Omar Sharif is underwhelming in this film. Seventh, it is boring. It is not capable of holding your attention.
1: Detecting a theme here.
2: (laughs) Eighth, it seems this film is on some canon list because of the book and not because of the film itself. And to put it in the same category as Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia is insulting to those two great films. It is like placing a Yugo in the same category as a Porsche. Then there was Bob Lennon, who didn't want us to bother either, but for a quite different reason. I predict neither of you would now like Lean's Dr. Zhivago, even though it is a masterpiece of cinematic brilliance. My reason for saying this is that you have been using it as a joke for so long, digging at it in a failed running gag for months while being pushed in two different directions by those like me who love it and those who lack the ability to appreciate it. You could now look at it with fresh eyes about as easily as you could re-see Citizen Kane for the first time. I'm curious, Josh, how successful you were in your attempt to view Chivago with fresh eyes, and how successful you were in overcoming the boredom Robert Lewis forecasted. But let's start with a man who was the catalyst for this chat, Omar Sharif, who passed away at the age of 83 on July 10th. Virtually every obituary headline and almost certainly every lead sentence mentioned two Sharif performances, both in David Lean epics, Lawrence of Arabia, and Dr. Zhivago. We've both seen Lawrence, and I assume both appreciate his turn as Sharif Ali, but he is not, of course, the title character. He's not the star of Lawrence. To have any true sense of Sharif as an actor, we had to reckon with Zhivago. So, at the risk of sounding a bit crass, I'll ask you, borrowing from Shakespeare, have you come to bury Omar Sharif
1: or praise him? So you want to start with Sharif. You really do want Why me to not? be the villain here. <laughs> hey, you dig your own grave. You dig <laughs> I see, your own grave. see gray. where this is going. So let me say, before the Zhivago lovers start getting irate right off the top, that you like I'm glad movie. I saw the film. Okay. <laughs> I like this film overall. I also feel justified in my hesitancy To put it on a blind spotting list, just the fact that there were countless other movies I felt would be more important for me to see. I still feel that way after seeing Chivago. Did like it, did not care for Sharif. Really? If there's a weak spot in Chivago for me, and this is where I would agree with Robert Lewis, it's in Sharif's performance. Now, I completely understand the appeal of the idea of this character. He is a poet. So there's that romantic artistic side to him, but he's also a general practitioner. So he has this professional sheen as well, where Mm -hmm. he can hold down a real job. And the way he treats Lara, played by Julie Christie, I think is remarkable. She is, in the movie's words, a disgraced woman by the time he really comes to know her. Well, one character and, uses a much harsher term than that. But yeah, yes. Yeah, and that is how most of the men see her in this film, but not Chivago. He sees her as someone with many other qualities, good qualities, and a true person different from their past. So all of that is this romantic ideal. But I don't think Sharif brings anything with his performance that enlivens that for me. This is a very passive performance. And there are a couple of instances where he greets the changes of history, the pages of history turning with little more than an ineffectual shrug. I think particularly of the scene where he comes back from serving on the front to his lavish family home and finds that the Communist Party has divided it among countless other families to share this space. And within three steps into the home, he simply says, I think this is a better arrangement and then goes upstairs. And there's no sense here that he's biding his time, that he's going to play these different sides so that he and his family can survive. It's just this wallflower acceptance of whatever history brings upon him. Now, that may be one way to survive in a historical transition like this, but is it a way that's compelling to anchor a three hour and 20 minute drama? No. And I'll also say there's, you know, I even joked about it on Twitter after we saw it, this stare that he gives this watery stare where he trembles looking just off of the camera Mm -hmm. and he's shaking with emotion. It is so overdone in a way that's distinct from Christie's performance. This isn't a matter of it being an era style of acting that I couldn't get on board with because I think Christie is acting in the same style, but bringing a number of variations and facial expressions, Sharif never varies that expression. He gives this trembling stare when he sees a peaceful protest march get overrun by the czar's guards early on. It's the same one he gives later on when he's feeling some sort of romantic emotion towards Lara. And Lean doesn't do him any favors by relying on this close-up countless times, So I have to say Sharif was a pretty important weak point for me in a film that wants to be first and foremost a romantic drama. And it didn't really succeed for me. Now, I feel that what this movie really turned out to be is an apocalypse drama. And I didn't expect that at all. No, And I think the way it does convey this end of the world feel in this social upheaval is pretty remarkable and leans filmmaking powers are fully on display in the way that the movie captures this. And so for me, Zhivago was working best when it brought that romance to its knees and forced it to stand in front of this end of the world history and reckon with it. So I did find it to be an effective film in that way.
2: Hmm. I agree with you on that in terms of those apocalyptic scenes or the apocalyptic nature of the film being both surprising and very effective and maybe being even more effective ultimately than the romance. And we do agree quite a bit actually on Sharif. Maybe the key difference here is I found him to be A lot more compelling than you did, but I didn't find him to be as compelling as I expected him to be. Maybe because of the expectations a little bit in terms of this performance and how revered it is in this film. He is a far less dynamic character than I expected. And I agree with you that that expression is something Lean and Sharif- rely on a lot and probably too much. It's not even so much the, the trembling, it's the wide-eyed nature of it. He's constantly in a state of, of shock no or, or surprise. And until the end of the film or near the end of the film, we really don't get any variation in it. And that passivity is when something... When
1: he's frozen at the end, walking <laughs> through the snow? I mean, you, you, you wouldn't know... Except for the snow off his mustache, because it's the same face. He does
2: let out some exclamations, finally, and show some emotion there. But yes, that's a valid point. That all said, I think by the end of it, what I really responded to in the movie is, at its core, what that character is meant to embody. And it's something that is voiced by the characters. It's very much this conflict between the personal and the private and the public and political. And he is... The symbol of that. And that isn't always compelling because he's not supposed to be the character who is like others in the film, like Rod Steiger, who we'll talk about Steiger as Victor Komarovsky and even Tom Courtney, who plays Pasha, the activist turned really militant extremist, Strelnikov. Those are characters who try to bend history to their will. And very decidedly antithetical to that, we have shivago who is a character who tries to live in the world who tries to exist in the world by fitting that personal by fitting the private into that larger scheme he wants to be a man of the world he wants to be a man of this world in particular i think julie christie says of his character later in the film that he's someone who will never leave russia he is a patriot he wants somehow to see if he can reconcile who he is and what he's all about and that poet inside of him and that romantic side of him with the the horror, really, and the terror of what's going on around him. And I responded to that. I
1: but responded I to that key, conflict. I think it's key that she has to say that because Sharif doesn't give us that in the performance. Uh, the impression I get is he's just floating along through history and wherever he finds himself, that's where he's going to do what he does, which but, is write poetry yeah. and treat the sick. And that, that's fine. Like mm-hmm. I said, that that is certainly a way of living through history. But to root your film on that isn't going to work when you want it to be this affecting romantic drama. And when it does try to turn him into this man of conviction, which the last act very much does, I didn't buy it at all. See, I felt like it it wasn't in line with any of his actions before. Right, but I felt like there was a cumulative effect.
2: And that's where the movie's epic sweep really comes into play here is when they travel to another side of Russia to live – we see that experience. We see how that ten, eleven, however many hours train ride plays out. It plays out over the train days, rides an and it's gruesome. Sequence. And so there is that's one example. But I think by the end of it, we understand how he finally gets himself worked up to the point where he finally realizes that he has to respond, and he has to act in a way that he hasn't really before. And I think what I'm trying to say, ultimately, too, is there's an old adage about the villains always being the more compelling characters in almost any story, and they talk about him very directly. There's a scene, I remember, we saw this movie together and had to rewind it to see what the character was saying, but someone says the doctor's a gentleman, and a Bolshevik says, right, it's written all over him. And another character says, he's a good man, and that Bolshevik says, God rot good men well he is a good man and i think maybe what lean suggests in this film is that this is a world that isn't always for good men that they are going to be perhaps passive or a little bit pitiful at times but they do have to still earn our respect we we have to honor the fact that he's a man who still wants to see some kind of goodness in the world and quality in other people even if that makes him seem a little bit naive
1: and a little bit boring at times well i think Dr. Zhivago does make the political personal and the personal political, which is its main challenge with this sort of story, in ways that have nothing to do with Sharif's performance, even though he's in these scenes. And I'll give you an example of an early one, and this is mostly due to Lean. It's a parallel sequence, and Zhivago and Lara haven't even met yet, Mm -hmm. but... He is on the balcony and he witnesses the assault I mentioned on the peaceful. Protest. Yeah, really a massacre. And, and he's he's you know shaken by that as I described. Parallel with that is Lara, who is out with the Steiger character, who is this family friend, so called, but is really grooming her. He's looking to take advantage of her. And this sequence cuts back and forth between what Javago witnesses and what lara experiences and it makes the revolution it, it makes it a loss of innocence that is both grand for yes. him and intimate for her and i think that is very effective it is and, and it is, is a way of bringing these two strands together and it's also here's another way that the romance does work separate from performances again though christy as i said is is fantastic and i do want to get into how she is good But there's a metaphysical connection between these two characters that Lean manages to evoke through a parallel sequence like that or even an earlier one where they first share the screen. I believe it's on a trolley car and Mm -hmm. they happen to get on separately, sit next to each other. They're in the same frame. And something happens where outside the window where they both turn to watch it at the same time. Everyone else in the car looks forward. yeah, And it's just this idea of a link of them. And these echoes happened throughout the film. There's another one involving a candlelit frosted window that catches both of their attention when they're in separate spaces. For me, that's where the romance was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't in the close-ups of Sharif. It wasn't even necessarily in the scenes of them together. It was in this sense that the filmmaking creates that these two are somehow connected beyond the physical.
2: Wouldn't it have been lovely if we'd met before?
1: Before we did?
0: Yes got married and had a house and children. If we'd had children, Yuri, would you like a boy or a girl? I think we may go mad if we think about all that. I shall always think about it.
2: You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing Dr. Shivago upon its 50th anniversary and also paying a little bit of tribute, or we're trying anyway. Josh, you're making it hard to <laughs> pay tribute to Omar Sharif, who passed just a few weeks ago. And maybe a little bit ironically saying that, one of the things that also stuck out to me in this film, I jotted it down in my notes four or five times how often there was a phrase repeated about characters trying to live something about living or being alive. And I think actually the first time we hear it is when Victor Komarovsky says it about himself it explains to some extent why Julie Christie's character is actually attracted to him because he's a pretty vile guy. And I think even she sees that fairly early on. And yet she can't help, but be drawn to him as well for a variety of reasons that we could spend probably an hour trying to dissect. But one of them is that there is something about him and his understanding of the world. And his place in it that makes him a character who very much feels alive and he's going to take advantage of everything that he can. I'd like to go back and watch the movie and really think about that theme and how Lean is exploring it a little bit more. I did see today that the name Shivago actually supposedly speaks directly to that. The word Zhiv, the first part of Zhivago, means alive in Russian. And then the Slavic Orthodox Church, the word shivago would actually be saying the living so something about that personal and political and how you live in the world how you are a person who has those intimate moments and can have romantic moments and relationships but have it amidst this type of backdrop obviously is what this movie is about and so you're right that sequence is so stunning for a lot of reasons but it really does directly give us that theme but in a visual way so that's one reason for me why i did find the movie ultimately pretty interesting and actually not boring at all i think that to speak to i wasn't bored yeah Uh, yeah, to go back to robert sorry we weren't bored and i think not only because of what lean is exploring there but the production elements sure they don't alone make a movie great cinematography doesn't always make a great movie but they certainly help and here every frame is so loaded is so carefully composed even though there are a lot of close-ups at times and maybe an over-reliance on them, I think about how many times a conventional movie would have given us a close-up of a character and Lean doesn't because, of course, a close-up then takes them out of their space. And so we're constantly seeing Julie Christie and Omar Sharif in medium shots or in long shots, even if they're just sitting at a table or they're sewing or doing whatever they might be doing or writing because that is how we can then see them within the world, within the framework of the world, and see all those things that are literally within the frame.
1: Yeah, the composition here is remarkable, especially considering I think of Lean at least as a landscape artist, essentially. And really, he brings the same sense of care to these interior scenes Mm -hmm. and gets just as much meaning out of them. I think of that frosted glass door in Lara's dress shop that's used a couple of times to capture characters coming towards her or mm-hmm. leaving her and there's it always adds this sense of mystery in some cases or there's a threat to it in other cases and that's all part of the interior production design that is a really rich part of this film too for sure and there's so much repetition of some of these visual motifs you talk about the
2: frosted glass but the candle against the window and the condensation and how it forms a little circle that visual image is repeated maybe 10 times Mm -hmm. in this film and again if i had a chance to really rewind it and think about it and consider how lean is trying to use it and what he's trying to express i think that's something maybe on a future viewing i could understand more but it commands your attention it does force you to sit up a little bit and go oh he's using that motif again why is that i think too about moments such as the flowers i think about a key scene about midway through the movie where they're at a hospital and they have been together for about six months now, Sharif and Julie Christie, and they are very clearly falling in love. And there are these yellow flowers, very prominent in the frame that clearly lean is trying to associate her and associate their relationship with these flowers later in the film. When their romance rekindles and they do come together, finally, the ground is overrun with these flowers and then when things start to go bad we see those flowers being blown away much in the same way we see leaves being blown off trees which lean cuts to multiple times to sort of at least to me impart this sense of nature and history running its course despite your best intentions there's going to be death there's going to be decay and destruction another way the movie commands your attention is that it does not bother gloriously does not bother with exposition it does not spoon feed you history or character or action. It really does just expect you to catch up. And sometimes that can go the other way. It can, it can distract you so much because you don't know what's going on that you finally lose interest. But I was always compelled to try to put the puzzle pieces together and feel like I was an active part of this as opposed to just being a passive viewer. An example would be the mother, Julie Christie's mother, who has been having a relationship with Komarovsky and discovers that her daughter is and is so angered and saddened by that that she tries to kill herself we only know that because she tries to kill herself that all only comes out after we see that happen and we have to first decide okay did she do what i think she just did and probably for the reasons why the movie doesn't give you that it doesn't show her going through all those machinations in her head that brings her to that moment that's just one example there's a lot of information here that we're expected to come up with on our own and i like that i respect that
1: yeah it really does avoid the ex- heavy exposition handling that a historical film might have and it avoids those awkward moments i'll bring up just one because it's really one of the only ones i can think of where they learn about the czar being shot Via newspapers being handed about, which is, you know, simply there to tell us that that happened. There's no other dramatic. But for a film that has a lot of historical instances, Mm -hmm. that's one of the only ones I can think of. So it does an elegant job of handling those sorts of things. So I do want to get back to Christy and talk a little bit about how she managed to make this role fully develop in a way that um, Joan Fontaine did not in a film we did during our Max Ophel's marathon. How dare you? How dare you say something an negative an about Joan letter Fontaine? Letter from an unknown woman. Well, remember, we both enjoyed that film, but differed a little bit on her story and how that character was handled. And mm-hmm. her character there is very similar to what Lara's character is here, at least her experience in getting involved with a man who is much more casual about the affair, has different goals in it than she does as a young woman and being, quote unquote, damaged because of that. And I felt somewhat that Fontaine didn't quite bring us beyond the infatuation level with her performance. Christy here, I think, manages a certain individualism that's not only key to making her relationship with Kamaroski, the Steiger character, more interesting. It's more dynamic. It's Mm -hmm. not just one-sided, but also pays dividends as this movie goes on in terms of us understanding Lara as not someone who is just defined by the men in her lives, which she very much could have been. And I think for a 1965 film, a romantic drama, it's worth noting that Lara comes out of this, at least for me, as someone who not only had equally an interesting story as Zhivago, but was by far the more compelling character. And I think Christie has a lot to do with that Mm -hmm. because Lean handles her performance similarly that he does with Sharif's. More close-ups, they probably have equal number of those intense close-ups. And again, she's just able to bring far more nuances to it uh, to really help that relationship come alive for me.
2: Yeah, I think that there's a presence that she has. I think there's a strength that she has and a nuance. You're right, that she brings to this performance and really every performance I've seen her in that just defies a director or a screenwriter to confine her i just think that's the brilliance of julie christie and it's something that you can try to articulate and put a finger on but i think you either have it or you don't have it and julie christie absolutely has it i think someone else who has it i've mentioned him once or twice already rod steiger who i went crazy for because of his performance in in the heat of the night i really think that performance is one of my favorite all-time screen performances and i didn't recognize him here i was talking to you as we took a break at the intermission i'm like who is playing komarovsky because there's something about him that just seems so familiar and it's so powerful and he's inhabiting that character so well that i couldn't believe i couldn't place who it was and then of course i google it and find that well yeah who else could it be but rod steiger there is a gravitas that he brings to every role where he is playing here very much a larger-than-life character and is unmistakably charismatic. But he is, as I suggested earlier, also ruthless and vile. But he owns that vileness, which is what you have to do when Mm -hmm. you play any kind of bad guy, quote-unquote. He's a practical man above all else. And I think that if, as an audience member, we never really find ourselves rooting for him or sympathizing with him, we can relate to him, though. We can see that practicality. We can recognize the value of that in this world and just the way that he embodies it. You absolutely understand why at any moment a character can be drawn to him and never want to leave his side and a second later slap him in the face and think he's the worst person in history. Rod Steiger is the rare performer who can
1: play that type of character. Well, in his Kamarovsky, he's just a survivor right that's what he's going to get through this yeah in whatever way it takes he doesn't really have any principles beyond protecting himself and getting ahead and that makes it just makes him a more compelling figure going back to your idea of the villains often being more interesting that's certainly true in this case but steiger you're right does make him someone who when he comes back on the screen even though you know it's bad for lara Mm -hmm part of you is glad he's there yeah. because it will make something me, happen. He, he's going to make something happen and the energy level of the scene is going to at least double. Yeah. So can I talk a little bit more about this idea of the movie as apocalypse because sure. it it really was the thing that maybe surprised me. Going to back to your question at the beginning is what would I be able to see this through fresh eyes? Was I going to give the movie a chance? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean ex- I'm excited anytime I get to see a film that has any sort of reputation I never had. So that wasn't really a problem for me. What took me aback, what I did not expect, is the bleakness that the film captured in terms of this transition from life under the czar towards communism and what that meant and the horrors that that resulted in. And I think the sequence that does that best is the one you alluded to, the train sequence, when Zhivago is taking his family. So this is his wife, young son, and his wife's father. They're fleeing Moscow, heading out into the countryside. The The city behind them is in tatters. They don't know what is ahead, and at one point, they slow down alongside a village, and the train doors open, and we see this place that's just been inexplicably ravaged. You know, without the details of history being given to us, we're not even sure who did what to whom. And I think that adds to the horror, at mm-hmm. least it did for me. I couldn't say, oh, well, well, these bad guys did this and they're taken care of later in history. It was just a vision of a world come undone. The houses are burning. Women are running around. Dead cows are laying in the snow and the doors close and they just keep moving. And that re- that felt like something. I mean, certainly Bong jun hos Snowpiercer. Yeah, you can't help could, but think took, about it. Took something from this because yeah. this is a vision that's normally in our movies that see a. Oblique future, but Zhivago brings us to a bleak past, and that was really arresting for Mm -hmm. me. A couple other observations for me. I was a little bit
2: disappointed, though I recognize that it's hard to ever really capture the process of writing on screen, but to devote as much time as it does to talking about his poetry, Zhivago's poetry, and his standing as a poet, and yet we never really get to experience any of it. I think maybe we spy a few lines on the page, a couple characters say one or two lines. It's, if it's that, his eyes, Adam. You yeah, look into his eyes and you hear the poetry. Come on. Yeah, I, I maybe believe that a little bit more than you, Josh. But that is something where I, I feel like an opportunity was missed perhaps to really make us connect with that character in a different way or just understand what all the fuss was about when people are talking about how his poetry has been condemned by those in power because it's anti-russian or whatever or even just to understand the emotion i mean i think we do feel it we recognize that it must be powerful when we see julie christie respond to the words on the page nevertheless i would have liked to have responded to it a little bit myself i did love the tragic irony and i don't think we're giving anything away talking about a movie here that's 50 years old in the moment near the end of the film where they lament julie christie laments if only we had met before Life would have turned out so differently. We could have had this wonderful life together, but we're too late. You know, I got married, you got married, all these things. She doesn't say this, but we understand the circumstances that kind of conspired against them. And, of course, going back to that moment you touched on, the moment on the trolley, where it turns out they did meet before they knew each other before they actually were introduced to each other. And, of course, there's a little bit of tragic irony there in the sense that, well, what if they had actually been introduced to each other in that moment and not gone their separate ways? Maybe things would have turned out differently. The way I like to read it, though, Josh, is a little bit differently than that and recognize it as a case where she's misguided or she misunderstands sort of the way history works, the way destiny or fate really works. And that is, They did meet in that moment. Whether they knew it or not, they did have that moment. And guess what? Things didn't turn out at all the way she thought they would had they met earlier. They had their chance. It didn't happen. The only way they had their relationship, their time together, was because of all those terrible circumstances. That's what brought them together in the end, was having to live through all this turmoil, all this pain, all this anguish, all of these family members leaving them or dying or whatever the case is. They could only have their love together because of all that. And I think that there's something even more tragically ironic about that.
1: Well, and that also speaks to one element of the romance that I think does work. And that's when they do start to connect face to face in the hospital that you mentioned it's as colleagues. She's as a volunteer nurse at that mm-hmm. point. He's performing as a doctor. And so they bond over vocation in a sense. Yes. And so that's something stronger, certainly stronger than uh, the bond that she had experienced with Kamarowski. And that does lend a little bit of heft to their relationship. And certainly that this is all the reason why the movie persists is because it is this tragic Romeo and Juliet variation relationship where you think about what could have been. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is a mystique, an aura that has given the film its reputation and that in its best moments, the movie does manage to capture. Mm-hmm. Agree totally. And one other unformed thought
2: that is still swirling in my head is I do love the appearance of Klaus Kinski in the movie as a prisoner. That was him. Yeah, that's totally Klaus Kinski who is on that train that they get on board and he's chained up and is constantly just yelling out things that are You're stealing anti-establishment. You're one of my small moments
1: in Okay, big movies.
2: Well, we'll get there. You already stole one of mine, okay. so we're even. But what I love about that, it gets back to this idea I brought up earlier about really living. How do you live in this world and how do you reconcile the the personal and private with the the public and political? There's a suggestion almost. I wonder why he gets as much screen time as he does. And it's not a huge part in the film, but why even bother with that character? And it kind of hit me a little bit later where we finally see... Only when Shivago is someone who is completely untethered from the world, meaning he has deserted the army, he can't go there, he is away from his family and not sure that he'll ever find them again, if he'll even ever get home, when he does, are they still going to be there for him? He's completely a free man in the same way that Klaus Kinski's character says, I'm the only free man Mm -hmm. on board this train. Well, they're both free and he looks like Kinski in that moment. He's got that crazed look in his eye. He's got the wild hair and is unkempt. He looks just like him there. And so, again, maybe there's this notion that the only way to truly be free in this harsh world that we live in is to maybe be a little bit crazy or it means to be someone who is completely detached and you have to be removed from society or be removed from your family. And, and that's sort of the trade off, the unfortunate trade off. So they're in the same mental space. E- I think even so.
1: One man's free, the other guy's in chains. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think I gotcha.
2: Well, Dr. Shivago turns 50 this year, as we mentioned. And yes, your mom would totally love to watch it with you. Thanks for asking. Oh, Mar Sharif, those dreamy eyes. They are dreamy. If you've seen Shivago and agree or disagree with our takes,
1: email us feedback at filmspotting.net it's time to see if the rehearsals that Adam and I held during the Zhivago intermission pay off. Massacre Theater is up next. Then we'll briefly catch up with a few new releases we've seen during our time off, including Best of Enemies and my take on Tangerine. Stay with us. You always called me
0: your sweet prince well, sunset. case for love such a shine With
2: Could you tell me about that poster over there?
0: Alanis? Yeah. I don't know. I guess I'm susceptible like everybody else. What? I mean, she's pretty, all right,
2: but
1: it is, like she is pretty. the only thing in there. She's pretty in a very sloppy, very human way. Huh. You know, she's got this, like, squeaky, orgasmic quality to her voice.
2: This is Film Spotting. Jason Siegel and Jesse Eisenberg there talking about who else? Alanis Morissette. in that clip from a film that opens here in Chicago this weekend and is out in limited release everywhere. And it's the film we hope to review on next week's show, The End of the Tour, with Siegel as the late writer David Foster Wallace. A lot of buzz on this one coming out of its debut at the Sundance Film Festival in January. James Ponsoldt of The Spectacular Now fame is the director. And Josh, you were there at Sundance, but I don't believe you saw The End of the Tour. I do believe If I heard from your wife correctly, that you are engaging in the folly. I see it as folly always of reading the book before the movie, or maybe that loosely applies here. Yeah, It's especially folly, though, when we're talking about Infinite Jest. You've been reading it for only, what, about three years trying to prepare for this movie? When did
1: I start? Oh, it might be. It might be. March or April. Um yeah and it doesn't have exact bearing on this film. I know that. Probably people have said you should read some of his Well, it is the publicity nonfiction. tour for that book, isn't is it? Is it or is it I'm not even sure exactly. I've just had people tell me really what's more helpful for this film is some of his non-fiction, which I have read some of his essays, but hey, for me these are always excuses. That's I'm not doing it to compare the movie. It's an excuse to read a great book I haven't read. They're usually not this long. <laughs> <laughs> and well what, no book is this long what's really embarrassing about it is i i think i tweeted out a, maybe four weeks ago my progress and uh so i just looked at that and in the last couple of weeks i've only made a hundred more <laughs> pages since then so i've got a little bit to go yeah i would say maybe three to four hundred pages
2: random aside last year's trip to italy with steve coogan and Rob Bryden, Another intellectual road trip movie, of course, also featured a random conversation about Alanis Morissette. So pretty soon we might be at a point where we can do our top five Alanis Morissette references in cinema. That would be great. One more and you've got a trend and you could at least write a think piece about it. There you go. So as we said, end of the tour. Right now the movie we're planning to review next week and in anticipation of that review, the current Film Spotting poll has us asking you to name your favorite movie in which a writer is prominently featured. Lots of great movies fit this description, of course. We've got some of the more familiar titles on there. We did restrict this to novelists and even further to fictional movie writers. Some of the movies we gave you to consider, Midnight in Paris, Misery, Wonder Boys, Young Adult, and this obscure little film from Stanley Kubrick about an axe-wielding novelist who's suffering from a little bit of writer's block, a title that we probably
1: should have left out of the bowl because The Shining is currently dominating the results. Yeah, that's not surprising, and I'm not going to be able to find a way to go in a different direction either, I'm afraid. I would have to say The Shining. Well, I like what scott
2: mentioned on last week's show when they were reading this poll where he said in terms of just pure quality of film the shining's mm-hmm. the right answer but it isn't necessarily the best movie about being a writer or the process of being a writer i think he said wonder boys yeah, is the one he'd go if with you're there. going to define
1: it that way wonder boys is your choice i so agree
2: it all depends on your perspective as with all things in life and if you are one of those huge wonder boy fanatics out there go to filmspotting.net vote now and if you leave a comment we do Hope you let us know where you're listening from. Couple podcast plugs I wanted to throw in here real quick. I discovered recently a new podcast, Josh, even though the host of the podcast and the podcast itself isn't new to me. I've been aware of, you must remember this, Karina Longworth show about classic Hollywood. So good. The golden age of Hollywood. I've been aware of it since it started, I think. She's on 60 episodes or so now, so it's been around for a little while, but I've been seeing these little tidbits on Twitter and stuff about her 10-part series on Charles Manson's Hollywood, and I'm on episode five right now, and I'm already bemoaning the fact that I'm going to be out of episodes
1: soon. You're hooked, And I don't right? know how I'm going to go on if I don't have more of these to listen to. It's yeah, that good. Yeah, it is good stuff. The The one that I heard, I haven't listened to all the Manson ones, but... On Kenneth Anger and yeah. Bobby Bustle. That's the one I'm listening to right now. What a story. Oh, and, yeah. and the stuff that she digs up. And what's great about it is it's all... Extra information that, you know, I read a lot of criticism, listen to a lot of criticism podcasts and love getting that. But this is like this wonderful appendix to the background of these movies that you hear about in other ways. And here you just get this underside of them. Mm -hmm. In that episode, episode five, that's the Kenneth Anger one or maybe the one
2: before it. She has a throwaway line, but nevertheless encapsulates what you just said and what's so good about the series, which is looking at this whole Manson's story as a series of events that were set in motion and were kept in motion by all sorts of different players and the history of Hollywood and how it all factors in because I think like a lot of people I look back on the Manson story as just one of the murder of Sharon Tate and her house guests that night right and obviously it wasn't totally random but it kind of feels that way you don't see it in the broader context and what this podcast is all about is the context. And the context is just as fascinating as anything else you've probably read or heard about the Manson story. So highly recommend you must remember this. Also, I do have to give a little bit of shameless plug for a podcast that I am going to appear on. It's not out now, but Listeners of the show are probably familiar with the Cinephiliacs, Peter Labuza. He's been a longtime listener of the show and someone whose voice has been on in voicemails and such and emails over the years as a guest contributor. And this show that he hosts, sometimes he has filmmakers on it. He recently had James Gray on there, but it's first and foremost a podcast about film critics and film criticism. And he was just recently in Chicago, and I did sit down with him, and we spent a good hour and 20 minutes or so just talking about me, And talking about film spotting, if
1: that's something that interests you, then you might like this show. You also also got to pick a film to watch and talk about. So I'm curious, what did you force Peter to watch? I forced him to
2: watch, yeah, I get to pick. And I forced him to watch a movie that he had never seen before. And appropriate to the top five, we're going to replay here shortly. I made him watch a movie about a writer, The World According to Garp. A movie okay. that's in my penalty box, a movie that's in my personal all-time pantheon starring Robin Williams. I did have three choices. I gave him three options. The other two were movies that are movies about movies and were both films that were part of Film Spotting Marathons. And it turns out Peter hadn't seen any of the three,
1: but he wanted to go with the world according to I find to that day. hard to believe. I was always under the impression there was only one movie Peter hadn't seen. In all existence. In all, maybe that's Just it. Just one movie. I Garb, thought so too. But and apparently
2: there are three. It turns out I stumped him, but we did watch Garb and had a nice conversation about that. So that show doesn't have an exact release date yet. It might not come out closer to September, but obviously we will keep you posted and tweet out links and put links
1: on the filmspotting.net site. All right. Time now for Massacre theater. We perform a scene badly and you get a chance at winning a prize. Last time guest hosts Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps massacred this. How you doing? Fine, how are you? How do I look? You look fine. Get this. I'm in great shape. How about yourself? I'm all right. Okay, you're a new runner, huh? Why, I look out of shape? No, it's just that you're looking at cheap stuff. This is not serious running stuff. Why? Well, they put everything in one box and then they knock the price down. You buy it, you wind up bringing it back. Oh, all right, well, I am serious. Here's the thing, I just broke up with somebody, and I'm trying to start a new life, and I feel that running should be a major part of it. You want happiness? Get away from the box. That's Bob Einstein as sporting goods salesman and Albert Brooks as Robert Cole in 1981's Modern Romance. It was written by Brooks with Monica Johnson and directed by Brooks. A bit of trivia, Bob Einstein, also known as Super Dave. Mm -hmm. you remember Super Dave? Super Dave Osborne, sure. He is Albert Brooks' real-life brother, but you can probably see why Albert changed his name. From Einstein
2: to Bruce. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. A couple weeks back on episode five forty-seven, it was week one of the two-week dissolve takeover. Scott and Keith reviewed the Jake Gyllenhaal boxing picture Southpaw, along with Tangerine, and they shared the top five things they learned at the dissolve. That scene from Modern Romance, Josh was a tie-in to. I have no idea. I don't know what it was a tie into. I don't know if it fits in with Southpaw as a romance or with Tangerine as a modern romance. I don't really know where they were going with it, but they picked a funny scene. Unfortunately, they picked a funny scene that very few film spotting listeners could correctly identify. Did listeners give us any connections? No, no. I went through it and it didn't take me long to go through the emails because it was one of the lowest turnouts ever for Massacre Theater. Thank you, Scott and Keith. <laughs> Pete Craig in Alexandria, Virginia, aka Film Spotting East, wrote in Thanks for motivating me to revisit this movie for the first time in years. My favorite among Brooks's films. While most of Brooks' work tends towards biting satire, this one has an underlying sweetness and sympathy for his narcissistic protagonist without becoming overly sentimental, like his later defending your life it also has a great collection of quotable scenes this one among them a favorite that has stuck with me is when brooks's character robert is describing his relationship with mary played by catherine harold to his friend jay played by the late bruno kirby we fought and fought and then we'd have great sex we can never really talk jay after a pause do you need to talk Robert, oh, come on. We're men. Can't we bond?
1: Great stuff. Another one of the few who caught this massacre theater was Josh Stolberg. While Albert Brooks is still one of my all-time heroes, I feel there is no shortage of praise for him as a filmmaker. I thought it might be nice to single out his co-writer on so many of his amazing films, Monica Johnson. Monica was an incredible screenwriter, having co-written some of Albert's best films, Modern Romance, Real Life, Lost in America, Mother. And she wrote on Gary Shandling's show and Laverne and Shirley and Mary Tyler Moore. I knew Monica well. She was one of my writing mentors, and we wrote together for a few years. Monica was insanely talented, and I can't watch any of Albert Brooks' films without hearing her voice in every scene. Albert is incredible, but I loved hearing this clip because it was nice to think of my old friend and departed advisor. Keep up the amazing work on the show. I listen religiously. Well, thank you, Josh,
2: for that, and thank you for the note about Monica Johnson. As I said, not many names to sift through in the film spotting hat this week, Josh, but go ahead. Give it a shot. Who is the winner? The winner is Rance Craft from Austin, Texas. Rance. I'm not just saying this because you're in Texas. With a name like Rance Craft, if you're not wearing a cowboy hat while you listen to this, I'm so disappointed. Congratulations, Rance. Email feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own Film Spotting t-shirt. It'll look great with some boots.
1: I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then
0: why the hell don't you just stand still and say it? Instead of wandering all over the stage, you're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray.
2: Sam being very sneaky there with the Masquer Theatre theme music choice this week. We move on to Masquer Theatre, and we don't need to give you really any hints. I don't know that we're going to get much turnout. I don't know how beloved this film is among film spotting Nation, but the tie-in to a topic given a lot of time on this week's show should be fairly clear. I can't believe I'm going to do this in public. I've never done this before. I've never busted out this impression before
1: you've never done this actor no i thought i must have done him the last time then you're, you're like giddy i've never seen you so excited for I'm a ready. Theater i theater performance. i practiced under my
2: breath at the dinner table well that's more than you so let's see that's my little bit of
1: rehearsal you started off so i'm going to give you the action are you ready yes and action Boris. i have a confession to make yes ever since you and i were little children i've been in love with your brother yvonne oh sorry Go ahead. I'm so mesmerized. Oh
2: my I'm not ready. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Do not leave this in, Joe. You panicked. I did. And you know what? Here's the even <laughs> funnier part, Josh. I've completely lost the voice. <laughs> I had it. I nailed it alone. I've completely lost it. Do you need a, do you need a minute? I might. Hold do on. you want to go to your
1: dressing room? Hold on. See, I can't. I have performance anxiety. Let me alleviate your pain. You never had it. You only thought you did. Okay, I'm going to try it. you think it. you have it again? Let's try it again. All Let's right. start over. You're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> I don't know if I am. And action. Boris, I have a confession to make. Yes? Ever since you and I were little children, I've been in love with your brother, Ivan. Well, it's only na- I- Ivan? You're kidding. He can barely write his name in the ground with a
2: stick. He has true animal magnetism. Animal magnetism? All that talk about some perfect love and you're hot for Ivan? He kissed me. Any place I should know? It
1: warmed the cockles of my heart. That's just great. Nothing like hot cockles. I think he's going to ask me to marry him. But he's a gambler and a drinker. He's got a Neanderthal mentality.
2: Don't get me wrong. I love him like a brother, just not one of mine.
1: And, and scene. scene. Wow. I am so impressed by that effort. I went for it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the best I can do. You know what? I think two of the lines...
2: Yeah, Nailed. Nailed it? Okay, yeah, I'll that's take not a that. bad batting no, average. No, I mean, it's about a 250 batting average, but, you know, that's that's what I'm good for. If you know what scene we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location. I shall push it. To feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August
1: 17th. This is crazy. The winner will be selected <laughs> randomly from all the correct entries and announced on the show in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net.
0: This is my MA day one. Republicans decided to hold their convention south of the Mason-Dixon line. And I blew that one. Let's... <laughs> Pieces of the ceiling start flying, and then the whole thing started giving away. Help us extract meaning from these conventions, two of America's most eloquent commentators, William Buckley and Gore Vidal.
2: Well, our time off did give us a chance to catch up on a couple movies that have been released. And in my case, a few films that are coming out this weekend. You just heard a clip from the trailer for the new documentary, Best of Enemies. Actually, both of the movies I'm going to recommend here, Josh, both of the documentaries are very much about characters who are troubled and brilliant and acerbic and also very sad in their own ways. I think that certainly applies to William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. The documentary Best of Enemies is about their ideological battle that took place on TV, played out on television, on ABC, as part of their Democratic National Convention and Republican National Convention coverage that year. They were very much enemies. They were not only on opposite sides of the political spectrum, they really loathed each other and saw the other as bad for America. And it's funny because I've started reading a book that's about the relationship and the rivalry between William F. Buckley and Norman Mailer. And they were similarly on opposite sides of the political spectrum, but their rivalry did have at its core a friendship and a respect. There is no friendship, no respect between Gore Vidal mm-hmm. and William F. Buckley. And they were both out for blood during these debates. And the movie certainly gives us all sorts of backstory about those debates that played out on television and also shows us a lot of the debates themselves. But what I do respect a lot about the approach here of Robert Gordon and Morgan Neville and Neville recently made the documentary 20 feet from stardom a few years ago, they recognize what this movie ultimately is about and it's about these characters and how these debates affected them and the legacy of these debates not only on them personally but on our cultural discourse and rather than try to impose more substance on the debates than they actually had or try to make them even more important than they were they really see them as these personal conflicts that did set the table for now decades of characters yelling at each other on screen mm-hmm. and really full of these ad hominem attacks and not really being so much bothered by trying to make an argument or persuade the other person or anyone watching on television at home. But what I like, what I'm trying to articulate is that they don't try to imbue those debates as more intellectual or more sophisticated or some kind of golden era of cultural discourse. And I really respect that. And I just think those two characters are compelling figures. So definitely recommend Best of Enemies. And then I do recommend as well, not surprisingly, the latest film from Bobcat Goldthwaite, which is a documentary about Barry Crimmins, who's a stand up comic someone who somehow over the years I've only known by name but have never really seen his work. I don't think I was really familiar with him as a satirist and Goldthwaite is someone who has a relationship with him, who grew up with him, so to speak. They were young comedians together and you could look at that as maybe being a negative that he's not the right guy to make a film about Crimmins and his life because they are too closely connected. But of course Goldthwaite isn't the type of director if you've seen any of his other work to pull any punches or to not go into some really dark places there's a real incisiveness to his approach as a documentarian and a real honesty to it and i wasn't surprised to learn that at the chicago critics film festival that was held a few months ago call me lucky was the movie that won the audience award because it's a very smart movie barry crimmins is a smart character who i loved learning more about but there also is a real tragic element to his story that makes the movie not just a movie about a bitter cranky, comic, but really going back to what we were saying about the themes that David Lean is exploring in Dr. Zhivago, a figure who is really trying to reconcile as well his own past, his own really sad, tragic past with the present and the future, and still trying to affect change. And that's something I can definitely see audiences responding to in this film. So Call Me Lucky and Best of Enemies, they both open in limited release this weekend. I know Best of Enemies is out here in Chicago this weekend for sure. I'm not 100% sure that Call Me Lucky. Is opening here, but keep an eye out for both films. I'll link to more information in our show notes. See, those were
1: two really good reviews. You should have some sort of theme music for those. Where, where's the Kemp and I recommend. I know, well, I know. We'll get it. We could go back to Adam's articulate analysis. I just have to be more <laughs> articulate. That's the problem. <laughs> well, I'm not going to use the theme music because I'm only recommending one of these two films. I'll go quickly through the second one, but I want to start with Tangerine because. It's something pretty. It's one of those jolts of pure cinema you get during the year that doesn't necessarily mean it's coming from a perfect film, but it's an experience that you're going to remember that's going to mark this year. And that's what it was for me. Scott and Keith, when they co-hosted and sat in for us, both gave it a really good review as well. I know a ton of people are giving this attention. It's still in limited release. And it's an independent film about a pair of transgender prostitutes on L.A. streets on Christmas Eve. And the director, Sean Baker, working as cinematographer alongside Radium Chung, what they've done here is just given... This explosion of singular saturated imagery by using mobile phones. They've attached some sort of widescreen lens on it. So the entire film is in widescreen and the colors are so rich and deep. And the sun, the movie seems to follow the sun as it sets and it's almost in every frame. It's this extremely heightened aesthetic. And what's interesting about it is at the time that you're getting this blast of beauty that's unlike much that I've seen at the movies, you're going through some really griming stuff because this pair, played by Maya Taylor and Katana Kiki Rodriguez, as you might imagine, do not have an easy life at all. And the movie is true to that. It's true to their relationship with each other, but also how they simply survive in doing this work that is pretty nasty. So, you have this what should be discordant these two things, but the way the film comes together is that the griminess somehow becomes ethereal there's a there's a scene where a cab driver who is also a major character in the film he 's played by Karen Karagulian picks up Alexandra, played by Maya Taylor, and he picks them up occasionally for these quick sexual encounters while he's working, and they go through a car wash. And it's a fixed single take that follows from the back seat there in the front, and just the way the water plays on the windshield and the sunlight again coming through that open end of the car wash makes this somewhat tawdry scene, again, have this just different sort of magical feel to it. So it's this mixture that that I haven't seen very often. Definitely a film to experience uh, in a theater if you can. And I do believe, like I said, it is in limited release. On the other end of the spectrum, I did check out Ant Man because for me, Marvel's had a fairly decent batting average. And that's coming from someone who was a casual comic book fan as a kid. And so the studio has had to win me over with these movies one at a time. I didn't grow up thinking, say, Iron Man was awesome. I actually thought it was kind of a dumb idea, this guy who built an iron suit and flew around in it. I thought Thor was a really dumb idea, some space god with a magical hammer. Both those movies I like quite a bit because of what Marvel was able to do with those characters and bring some wit to it and ingenuity and smarts and clever And they do action. that with Ant-Man. And, you know, Marvel can't win them all. Or not. And, you know, it's uh, with Paul Rudd, you would think that Perhaps this would work perfectly. A guy who's got a lot of charm, a lot of charisma. It's just really a lifeless exercise. It feels formulaic, and maybe that's where we're at at this point with some Marvel films. I know I wasn't high on Avengers Age of Ultron either, so maybe just growing tiresome. But there's really uh, something missing here in terms of the pure energy level, and Rudd does his best. He's performing CPR on this thing, but it just doesn't work. And it's also full of the sort of uh, franchise care that deadens a lot of these films. Uh, Ant-Man gets uh, this extended fight with Falcon just so they can kind of bring him into the Avengers universe. And the stuff that sounds silly, but Marvel usually makes pretty cool here. It's just silly. I mean, Paul Rudd riding a flying ant and and saying, "wooey," wee it (laughs) sounds pretty dumb. It is pretty dumb. Well, I wanted to see it until that (laughs) part. No, (laughs) it's what you're imagining.
2: Well, Ant-Man is a movie I don't know that I'll end up making time for. You'll love this story about Tangerine, Josh, because it will fit perfectly in with my history, my sad history of starting movies and (laughs) somehow not finishing them. I had a screener link to watch tangerine just as you did but now these dang publicists they insist on putting expiration dates yes they they give you only a certain window a lot of times to watch these screeners and i was on vacation with my family and one morning i woke up before the rest of the family did and i said i'm gonna at least get it's only like 85 minutes long but i'm gonna get a chunk of this done and i'll come back tonight after everybody goes to bed and i'll finish this movie and so i saw the first 15 minutes or so of tangerine and everything you've said about it Makes complete sense to me, and I was hooked, and I couldn't wait to finish the movie. And I came home and tried to watch it, only to find that the link had now expired. So now I don't know when I'm ever going to get to finish Tangerine. I'm just in limbo. That's that's not as bad
1: as your World of Tomorrow, tomorrow story, watching where, like eight minutes of seventeen. Couldn't make the whole seventeen I'm the worst. minutes. <laughs> I'm the worst Well we'll be right back With a revisit Of a 2013 top 5 Small moments In big movies Looking back Our lists are a bit Embarrassingly bro, But we hope you'll listen anyway Stay with us Put my love In your love
0: And love it Talk with me And bring it Sway Put my love Unfurl all the light that's still beneath It's not a lie, And it's not by design It's not some pending day it's not pill. Oh.
2: As we've been off for a couple weeks, Josh, we have missed an opportunity to thank our listeners for their generosity. Some of those listeners who have gone to PayPal or sent us a letter or a card in the mail and donated some of their hard-earned cash our way. We want to get to a few of those thank yous here in a moment. We first want to mention our featured artist this week, Wilder Embry, an old friend of the show from the Nashville Singers 2014 album. You've heard tracks from Smolder Olding Picture Aid. And yes, that is what the album is called. Smolder Olding Picture Aid. More information at WilderEmbry.com. I'll say this about Wilder Embry. Not only do I like his music, as we have played it multiple times over the years on the show, but in keeping with the discussion of epic romances, going back to Dr. Chivago, I will mention Sam and Carrie Van Halgren, who had a surprise appearance by Wilder Embry at their wedding. That. He performed at their reception and did quite a wonderful job. Again, wilderembry.com if you like what you hear. Let's get to some donations and a few comments. We have a couple new $5 a month donors to the show Alex in Hamilton, Montana, Brian in Gilbert, Arizona, we have a new Bucca show donor, Kevin Terrell in Melrose, Massachusetts.
1: Just heard episode 546, where you read my email in defense of insert phrase here. I've listened to every show since the Maddie Ball game days, but I don't frequently communicate with you guys. I've noticed the A couple of times i have you've read my email on the air including a massacre theater win so that's a good track record it also shamed me into realizing that i haven't donated in a while so i just donated a buck a show for the past year of freebies i won't say i'm paying the dealer since i hate that phrase almost as much as sam and sydney hates insert phrase here i hope you can go the few more shows without saying that phrase good luck thank you kevin but what's wrong with paying the dealer how can you hate that phrase well, hey, don't argue with them. He's Kevin's still Kevin's very paint. sensitive. He did. He gave us a buck a show. Are we okay and we on this it. show so far, by the way, with the phrase? I think Because we've so. got two down with the dissolvers taking I think over. those should count. <laughs> those they obvious, probably don't, but they should. count. <laughs> I mean, you could say that Omar Sharif really brought dewey Eye Despair to a whole... You know, you could, I could have said it. You could have. I could have. It would have fit, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, a Silver Club donation comes to us from Mel in Vermont, and
2: I really regret the fact that mel chose to give us the name mel instead of mel's full name because he's got a great one i don't want to say it because maybe he doesn't want his full name read on air but in his paypal donation not with the note he sent we got his full name and it's amazing (laughs) it's an amazingly awesome i'll just say if you've read like the odyssey or the iliad you'll you'll recognize it okay it's not achilles but but it's in keeping with those names. Mel says, I started listening in 2013 on my brother's recommendation and vividly remembered the Pacific Rim episode. We all remember where we were when we heard the Pacific (laughs) Rim episode, number 453, falling squarely in Team Adam that time, and probably every time since, with the notable exception of Birdman. Really, Adam? Yeah, really, Adam. I always appreciate yours and Josh's analysis, as well as your frequent guest hosts, and I really enjoyed digging into the archives a bit. Through both full reviews and top fives, you've turned me on to great movies like Nebraska, What We Do in the Shadows, Blue Ruin, The Elephant Man, This is not a film and even ones i didn't end up enjoying as much like prince avalanche and frank but i'm still glad i checked them out my letterbox watch list is filled with movies you've championed and i always love going back to your reviews after i get around to watching one of them well thank you Mel.
1: One more here from Eric in San Francisco. Hi, Adam and Josh. I'm finally getting around to donating after six years of on off listening. Depending on commute lengths and travel frequency, your weekly efforts are greatly appreciated. I'm also finally getting around to sending you some feedback on episode 546 in the Top 5 Comedy Ensembles Revisit. I was surprised that the comic team that first popped into my head when hearing the topic wasn't on either of your lists or in your honorable mentions slash sheepish apologies. The first pair that came to my mind was Harold Ramis and Bill Murray. Mostly since Ghostbusters is my favorite comedy of all time. Can we just rename honorable mentions sheepish apologies? Because <laughs> like that's that. really what it is. It would apply. My first thought was maybe there was no third person who'd been involved in more than two movies with them, so they didn't meet the complex math requirements. A quick check of Wikipedia, though, confirmed that Ivan Reitman was involved in four really solid films with them as the third member of the team. Meatballs, Stripes, and Ghostbusters, I think, would all be rated as very good to fantastic, and even Ghostbusters 2 is okay. Okay, let's not. You can... Let's not get carried away. <laughs> Actually, dive into the Harold Ramis collaboration matrix to find other combos of him with actors for some combos wow I feel like the Ramis-Reitman-Murray ensemble at least deserves some mention right thanks as always when this top five gets revisited again in three years I hope you'll add them to the list of apologies
2: well Eric consider that trio mention thank you Eric and thank you everyone who donated including all of our regular monthly subscribers we appreciate every little bit that we get
0: feel just
2: with empty space. In my head. Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison
1: Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at FilmSpottingSVU.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes.
0: Hello,
2: Film Spotting Original Recipe listeners. This is Matt Singer from FilmSpotting SVU inviting you to check out our latest
1: episode where Allison Wilmore and I bring our intimate and extensive knowledge of the modern music business to our review of Beyond the Lights.
0: Plus, we'll be recommending some other movies about the music industry that you can rent or stream at home right now. To listen to the episode, search for us in iTunes or check us out at FilmSpottingSVU.com. Hi, this is John C. Riley, and you're listening to Film Spotting.
2: Welcome back to Film Spotting. It's top five time, and this week we're going to revisit our top five small moments in big movies, a list we originally made back in May 2013. It's our blind spotting review tie in with Dr. Shivago, and we did think to just really cement the tie-in that we should start with a couple of picks from Dr. Shivago that would be eligible for this list. Now that we've seen this epic, historical, sweeping romance... Would we have considered one or two moments from *Shivago* for this top five list had we the opportunity to do it all over again? And, of course, it would have helped maybe make up for the contemporary bias that does come through a little bit in our original list you'll hear in a moment. But for you, what were the small moments in Chivago that really stood out?
1: I think we would have included it because this is something that *Shivago* is really good at and, and Lean takes the time for and it pays off in a lot of ways. In our review, we talked about that train sequence. And you mentioned Klaus Kinski as the forced labor mm-hmm. on there. I do like that thread with him, but there's another even smaller moment within that that stood out to me, and I might have included on a list like this. It's the older couple. It's almost a throwaway shot. Oh, but yes. But these, these people are all cramped in uh, this I one I meant to car, write that one down. And Zhivago looks down and sees this old... The man almost looks dead. Yeah. And... Judging by what these people have been through, that's definitely a possibility that some people have died along the way on this journey. He almost looks at until the wife, we assume it's his wife laying next to him, rolls over and just gives the, the most gentle kiss, which then makes him move and, and kind of move closer to her. And again, just this little note of humanity amidst this apocalyptic setting that stood out to me. And can I say, speaking to that notion that you
2: talked about in detail, the apocalyptic setting maybe it's because of that or maybe it's just my own bleak worldview that when that man started coming closer and closer to her and was showing affection for her, I actually thought because of the bleakness of what we were he seeing. assaulting her. Exactly. I thought it was something lecherous, yeah. that it wasn't that did sweet cross my at mind all. Too. And then what we see is her smile and yeah. the kiss and the fact that, no, they love each other. And there is this moment of grace. There is this moment yeah. of humanity amidst that bleakness. You're right. That's a great one.
1: The other one is even quicker, and it comes early on. It's when Chivago's a boy, actually. You're not going to steal it. The close-up of his mother yes! underground. come well, on. you know, with, these, this is why these I did these notice work. we were taking notes a lot at the same time, yeah, this movie maybe, I just watched to see when you started scribbling <laughs> it, and then course. I grabbed my notepad yeah that's <laughs> no, it that, I mean it it stands apart from so much of the film yep. maybe it doesn't sound like it because we're we were just talking about how bleak things were this isn't it's bleak, but it's more horror. And and it's this is something that the boy, Shivago could just as easily have imagined yes, that's as the much point, I as think. that we're actually seeing his mother's coffin under the ground. Yeah. And yeah, that one jumped out at me right away.
2: Well, yeah, we're on the same page. I forgot to write it down, but certainly the moment with the two older people on the train. Certainly the moment you brought up during our main review, where we see Shivago and Laura, where they meet but don't meet for the first time on the train. They both look. The fact that Lean captures that moment where they both see something outside the window that no one else sees, that links them together. That was one of mine. But the other one was that coffin moment because it so stands out. It doesn't really make any sense or rational sense that we would cut to the inside of a coffin where we're not. Seeing any new information, nothing is really being revealed to us. And one of the only things I thought about was the way it again signified a link between son and mother that somehow going right from him and cutting from his face to then cutting to her face in the ground in the coffin, where obviously a camera wouldn't normally fit. The fact that he chose to show that it links those two together, it connects them in a way that also suggests the poet in him i think because it's about his imagination it's about maybe in that moment him trying to put himself in that position thinking about his mother not just thinking about in a superficial way but really trying to consider yeah yeah. imagine what, what that must be like for her to be under the ground and the effect of that the psychological toll on a young boy to think about his mother in that way it's it's really powerful. Obviously, it was one that stood out for both of us. Let's get into the top five now with a clip from a movie that helped redefine the very meaning of big movie as one of the first, if not the first, modern blockbuster.
0: It's a bull shark. It scraped me when I was taking samples. I got something That's the Thresher. You see that, Chief? Thresher's tail. Thresher? It's a shark. You want a drink? Drink to your leg. I'll drink to your leg. Okay, so we drink to our legs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that, of course, is Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and the great Robert Shaw from Steven Spielberg's all-time great film, Jaws. And. That scene, I think, not only perfectly sets up our top five this week, small moments in big films, because it is a perfect small moment in a film that was really the first blockbuster that when people think about Jaws, even though that scene's beloved, they probably think of some of the bigger set pieces when they recall that movie, but also because when we threw this out on Twitter, this idea, and threw it out on Facebook and said, we're going to need your help this week, because this is going to be hard to remember all the great big films we've seen and those small little moments that have stood out to us. It seemed like it was just a Spielberg love fest. And that does make sense on some level, right? The guy who gave us the modern blockbuster and has made so many great action movies. It does make sense that he would come up over and over again. And with that noted, we should probably point out that Raiders of the Lost Ark in the film Spotting Pantheon... No there small are so moments from many
1: that. from that film you could pull,
2: though. Exactly, but they won't make our list this week on the show because it is put away in that all-time list of our favorite films. And I hope I'm not stealing any of your thunder, Josh, but the other ones I saw, maybe not surprisingly, these moments came from big franchises. A lot of love for Lord of the Rings. A lot of love for the various Batman films. Those two, along with Spielberg, were the, the most common ones I saw pop up.
1: Yeah, and I think the reason is that these small moments make these movies last in our memories. Mm-hmm. They're why they stand out as opposed to all the other countless action flicks we get that are missing these. Maybe they don't define the picture or define the story or the narrative, right. but they still elevate the experience. And so that's what I thought of when putting together this list, which was really difficult. Can we just blame Sam?
2: Yeah, we can. Because <laughs> this was his idea. producer's brainchild. He's brilliant. It's a brilliant top five idea. I hope we I do love the justice, idea. But it was maybe the best in theory, hardest in practice to execute that we've had with a top five for a long time.
1: Well, and the reason is because you really need to sit down and watch a movie looking for these to get the best one. So I'm going to throw that out there as a caveat that I could probably find other ones oh, if sure. I had just sat down and spent a week looking through some of the Spielberg films. Yeah. Um, so these are the ones that first came to mind. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they are the definitive top five. I think they're all good. I talked about how the movie doesn't depend on them. And that was one characteristic I thought about. You could pluck this small moment out of the movie. And for the story, for everything else going on, it wouldn't really suffer. Mm-hmm. The film would still, quote, work. Yep. But – They're still crucial. Also, I thought about them being very brief. So the Jaws-Scar scene, I think, is a good example. Okay. But I was looking for things that were even shorter than that, just little bits that stood out amidst all the bombast that was going on otherwise. I am going to start with one of the franchises you mentioned, The Lord of the Rings. This is from a battle scene, one of the many battle scenes, in this case an army of evil orcs, is attacking this walled city of men, and the moment involves... An orc leader. His name, and I did have to look this up, I'm not this much of a Lord of the Rings nerd, Adam. His name is Gothmog, played by Lawrence Makoare. I'm not sure if I'm getting that right, but that's the actor's name. If none of this rings a bell, this is the guy whose head looks like a marshmallow that's been roasting over the campfire for a little while. It's white, it's puffy, bulging, a little bit melty. Really one of these amazingly horrific creations that the Lord of the Rings films have. At this moment, a boulder is catapulted from the City of Men into the Orc Army. And Peter Jackson's camera, as it often does in these scenes, follows the rock through the air, lands right next to Gothmog. He takes a slight step to avoid being hit. He has to move or he'll be crushed, but he's sure to keep his other foot on the ground to show that he's not going to move too much. And then the boulder crushes a bunch of his soldiers. He looks at it, spits on it. Great, tough guy moment. But I do think it also speaks to the idea that throughout The Lord of the Rings, there is always this emphasis in these big spectacle scenes on character. The spectacle really does come second. And that's throughout the whole franchise. Yeah, that's a great scene. An honorable mention for me. (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) You just have that
2: one on a loop, don't you? (laughs) Exactly. No, I'm sure that's a great choice. And many of our listeners will be on board with that pick. For once... We're on board with this top five. We're in sync, Josh, because although I didn't really consider length as a factor, I thought of small more in the sense of there just not being much action to it. I did, though, have that exact same criterion you did, which is that these could almost be seen as throwaway scenes. You could lift them out of the film, and the plot, the overall story, in theory... Wouldn't really be hurt. It wouldn't feel like it's absolutely crucial. But at the same time, they are those elements, those little scenes that stick with you, that linger with you long after the movie's over, and you find yourself maybe going back to and appreciating over and over again. And along those lines, my number five comes from the movie Heat. And it's not the scene that a lot of people suggested it should be, which is the Pacino De Niro Mm -hmm. coffee diner scene where they have their big conversation. Besides me wanting to avoid that a little bit because it's kind of obvious, in a lot of ways, that really is the biggest scene in the movie. It really does have to be It's there. the one we're waiting for, And it's really. the one, as audience members, we are waiting for. So it's a crucial moment. Didn't quite work for me. The moment I'm going with, I wonder if you remember this one, Josh, is this quiet moment that's always stuck with me from Heat with Dennis Haysbert and an actress named Kim Staunton. They play a husband and wife in the film. They're totally peripheral characters in this film. In fact, for the longest time, you don't understand why he keeps cutting back to this storyline, which isn't a big part of the movie at all, but he's recently been let out of prison, he's on parole, she's trying to help him stay on the straight and narrow, he takes a really bad job at a restaurant, and he's really unhappy there, and you don't understand why Michael Mann keeps going back to them and spending any time with them at all, and it starts to become a little bit clearer when you see that he is finally fed up He's thinking about the fact that he just can't take this life anymore of doing the nine to five restaurant job that he's in. And we get this exchange between them where she asks him if he can just stick with it, just handle it a little bit longer until they find something new. And he has that great line. He says, There ain't a hard time been invented that I can't handle. But then he has to ask her that question Why are you still with me? He basically is saying, I'm a loser. This is pathetic. These circumstances are clearly not ideal, and yet you're sticking with me. And she tells him that she's proud of him. And it really melts him, but it melted me as well. And then you get that kick in the pants that man gives you when later in the film, without spoiling it too much if anyone hasn't seen Heat, when the big heist does happen, you see what role Dennis Haysbert character does play in this grand scheme. And that for me is really fascinating because you finally see what Michael Mann is up to in terms of painting this portrayal of LA in this crime scene. We get this tapestry of criminal life where it's not just the big De Niro characters and the big cop. We get the detective played by Al Pacino, but it's about these people just struggling to get by. It's about the people who are hurt by the types of crimes they're committing and people just making bad decisions, trying to get through day-to-day life and hurting the people they love in the process. So that scene is one for me that you could completely rip out from the film, but I'm so glad it's there.
1: Yeah, and it's not top of mind. I don't think about that at all when I think of Heat, but as soon as you start talking about it, it comes back to me. So, yeah, good pick. All right, we talked about Spielberg. I knew Spielberg was going to be on this list for me. It was just a matter of which film. I didn't expect it to be War Horse. I mean, I like War Horse, but I didn't think of that as—I was thinking more of the big, big Spielberg Mm. films. But I did then remember this moment— I'll confess that I forget which sequence it actually comes from. I want to say it's when Joey, the horse, is being worked nearly to death by the German army. I'm pretty sure that's where it comes from. And there's this other horse that does collapse from exhaustion, I believe. Maybe it breaks its leg. This part's unclear in my memory. What I do remember is that there's a horse that's taken away to be shot. And the moment we hear that gunshot, the entire cavalry of horses, they all jerk their heads up in unison. I mean, it's a half-second moment. But I can't think of another recent bullet shot in a movie, and how many of those do we get? That's been so startling to me. I know a little bit is that this animal factor that we have with movies, where sometimes we empathize with animals on screen more than we do humans for whatever reason. That's probably playing a little bit into this, but I do think it's also the multiplicity of the frightened movement that jars you, that you see it echoed in all of these figures as these animals Hmm. act together in reaction. It drives home also that it's not just Joey, you know, the horse of the title that's experiencing all this warfare, but there are probably thousands of others out there as well. Yeah,
2: I like War Horse and I feel like that's a movie that got generally favorable reviews and yet there seems to be a real contingent of Spielberg supporters out there that don't think it's among his better films. And to be honest, I can't remember exactly where I ranked it
1: in his filmography, but it's not in the top 10. It's very heavy it's still on the movie sentimentality like. that can be it a is. weakness of his. So yeah, I think that holds it back for some people. It might. And That would normally
2: hold it back for me, and yet in that landscape of this fairy tale, which is so clearly what it is, it worked for me, absolutely, and that is a great pick. For my number four, I go back to our discussion of Star Trek Into Darkness and how I talked about Chris Pine not being able to fully sell the emotional moments in that movie, even though otherwise I think he's really good. I think what he needs to do is just go back to this movie, Lethal Weapon, and watch Mel Gibson on repeat And look at how he does anguish. And the scene I'm thinking of in particular, I'll call, I'll see you later. But it's the scene where it's just Mel Gibson sitting on his couch with a picture of him and his wife in one hand and his gun in the other hand. And it's fairly long, actually. It plays out over, I'd say, about three minutes or so where you clearly can tell that he is deeply depressed And disturbed. We've heard throughout the movie up to this point that he's a guy who supposedly has a death wish, and we do see that he behaves as though he doesn't have a lot of regard for his own welfare. And then we get the scene with him on the couch, and we understand why. Because clearly he's lost someone that meant a lot to him, and he's contemplating suicide. And we see him take that gun, first study it, then put it up to his head, and then put it into his mouth. and he kind of has this breakdown moment and he ultimately of course can't go through with it and at the end he says that line
1: i'll see you later i'll see you much later Uh...
2: but that scene tells you everything you need to know about this character riggs why he's disturbed it makes us sympathize with him after that scene there's almost nothing that character could do to make us not like him or at least root for him and there aren't enough Great, small, quiet moments like that of character introspection in the Lethal Weapon sequels and in most action movies. But that's why I go back to Lethal Weapon as one
1: of those all-time great summer action blockbusters that I still enjoy watching. But I think you're right in making the Pine comparison because the real reason that scene works is because of Gibson. I mean, you could write that into a movie and say, oh, we want this genuine moment here. Uh-huh. But if you don't have the actor to do it, it's going to come across can as do it. false. Yep. And that would be even worse. Mm-hmm. My number three... It's probably not fair to pick a Pixar movie because in a lot of ways, they're mostly built on small moments. They're like this accumulation of beautiful small moments that fit together for an overarching narrative. But I'm still going to go with this from Toy Story, and it's The Claw. Buzz and Woody, The Claw. <laughs> very good. I like that. Buzz and Woody wind up in one of those arcade machines. But can you operate a claw and then try to grab a prize from the pile below? The alien toys, who are the prizes they worship the claw they see it as some sort of all-knowing selective deity again this is completely unnecessary for the film really but it's so funny that these guys show up again i want to say they show up in 3 possibly toy story 2 oh, yeah. as well they are they show in all up in of three. them yeah. yeah i mean people really latched on to this moment it also does in miniature what the whole movie does, which is reorient our perspective. So mostly we're seeing the world from the point of view of toys, Buzz, Woody, and the gang. And here we get an even more limited perspective where we're seeing it from these alien toys that are trapped in this game.
0: The it moves. I have been chosen. Farewell, my friends. I go on to a
1: better place. And I got to say, if you have any religious beliefs at all, this is a very existentially jarring moment that these aliens are worshipping this being that's just the claw. So, you know, leave it to Pixar to layer a throwaway moment with something like that.
2: No, you're so right. I think that there's something about... That sequence that really does stick with you. I mean, every kid I know who watches Toy Story 2, they come out quoting that line. They come out thinking about the claw of all (laughs) things from that movie. It does happen at the end of the film, as I recall, but it's a great scene and a really good pick. My number three is from a fairly recent action film that I like a lot, and it certainly is packed full of action. It's the Duncan Jones film Source Code. Oh, and yeah. it's a moment with jake gyllenhaal our hero in that film and if you haven't seen it i'm not going to get into a lot of the specifics and it does get kind of crazy with time travel and characters relating to other characters in the movie i'll just say that he calls his father at one point on the phone just to hear his voice to talk to him one more time but he can't tell him who he really is
0: my name is uh, sean fentress I served with your son, Coulter oh boy it's uh I'm sorry it's taken me so long to call you
2: he's pretty good, he manages to be pretty tough through the very beginning of the phone call and then it's when his father starts talking and says that it's okay he didn't call sooner, sometimes we get busy and things slip by us
0: um how are you doing sir?
2: That moment, Hall loses it, but in a really truthful way, where it's not about histrionics, it's not a sell-it Oscar moment. It's a breakdown moment that I feel like, unfortunately, every one of us watching that film have had at least once in our lives, where we are totally distraught and totally helpless, and that's what really comes through in the moment. And as I think on it, I think this does fit because... I'm not sure that scene really fits into the larger plot at all. I think it's something you could take out of the movie, but it's a real strong emotional beat. It helps us identify with that character, and it really takes this abstract time travel scenario and personalizes it and does ground it emotionally in a way that I think is really important to that film.
1: Boy, Source Code, what a shame that that movie didn't really go anywhere, and and so odd that it didn't either. Good pick. Number two, I'm going to Return of the Jedi, and it's going to be the moment early on when Chewbacca strokes Han Solo's hair while they're in Jabba's prison. Now, Peter Mayhew was the man beneath all that fur, and he made the decision early on to play Chewbacca. He played up the cuddly aspects of the character more than anything else. I mean, despite the fact that he's over seven feet tall, he's armed to the teeth, he has super sharp teeth he still gives the character this feel of a a protective guard dog more than some sort of aggressor. And this is especially true, of course, when it comes to Han Solo. So in this scene, it's the first time, I think, that Chewie has been reunited with Han after Han had been frozen in Carbonite at the end of The Empire Strikes Back. So it's this reunion moment. It is a big moment in that sense. But I'm going to go even smaller to just, again, another little half second of this scene. He does this small touch where he just pets Han on the head. And it's a nice little reversal yeah. of the pet-owner yeah. relationship they have there. It's, it's really the reason that the whole reunion scene works.
0: Hmm. Uh, All
1: right, pal.
2: Yeah, that's one I didn't think about at all, but definitely qualifies. It is a nice moment that I do now remember, and we should point out that Empire Strikes Back and the original Star Wars in the film Spotting Pantheon, but Return of the Jedi is the only one I could go to. Yeah, it's the only one you could go to. And I mentioned at the top of this segment, you're listening to Film Spotting, where we're sharing our top five small moments in big movies, that Spielberg films were very popular, the Batman films, The Lord of the Rings. I failed to mention that Star Wars was the single most popular choice. That was the one I definitely saw the most, so I'm glad you gave this saga some love. I'm going to go back to Lethal Weapon territory here, back to a classic action movie for my number two. It's a film we discussed not too long ago here on the show as one of our sacred cow discussions, and it's Die Hard. Bruce Willis, of course, John McClane. The scene is, tell her I'm sorry.
0: She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. <sighs> She never heard me say, I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Al. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? Yeah, I
2: got it, John. We talked about this during the review. He's talking to Al on the phone. He's finally coming to terms with the fact that... He may not get out of this. And that was something I loved where I didn't remember the vulnerability of that character. You don't think about a lot of our favorite action heroes as being that vulnerable, as having those moments where they seem like, okay, they are destructible. They're not invincible. And this may not end well. We get that moment here. And it was a revelatory moment for me on the whole looking back on the film, seeing it after not watching it in about 20 years where everything really clicked into place about how the movie is breaking down this kind of macho stereotype. The film is slyly satirical in its look at American masculinity, and you've got this tough guy here who wants his wife's career to not get in the way of his as a cop. She shouldn't go out and take this job in L.A., even if it's the best thing for her. He should get to be a cop in New York City and have his family by his side no matter what. And what we finally get in that dialogue bit with Al is his recognition of the fact that Yeah, he may have told her that he loved her many times, but he never once said he was sorry. He always took a position of power with her and never really tried to see things from her perspective. And in that moment, he does have that epiphany and finally has that reversal with his character. It's a key moment in the film, though again, you probably could strip it out of the movie, and I think you would certainly lose something emotionally, you'd lose something of that relationship with his wife, but in terms of the action, it doesn't matter, and there are certainly other really memorable sequences from Die Hard, but that's one for me, especially on the revisit that I'll always think about when I think about Die Hard.
1: I thought about Die Hard, too. You know, the the touch that I was going to include, probably an honorable mention, is the pinup calendar that he passes a couple times. I liked how eventually it becomes this Companion friend to him in a way, and it also marks where he's going because a diehard is a lot similar to the shining. It has a lot to do with space and how we're navigating space, and that calendar is always a good marker Mm -hmm. for us and for him. I like that. All right, number one, this one's actually a suggestion from a listener, Alex Anir, who said this on the Film Spotting Facebook page. The Dark Knight, the Joker, sticking his head Hmm. out of the cop car that he's stolen. As soon as I saw that, uh, that's exactly what we're talking about for this list. This is after one of the Joker's successful attacks. So it's this gesture of celebration. All you need to know about the character is right there in that little throwaway moment. Now, I don't know... Whose idea this was, whether it was Christopher Nolan's or his screenwriter brother, Jonathan, maybe Ledger suggested it. But it's brilliant. I especially like that little head shake that Ledger gives to kind of toss his hair back. A little extra touch of glory he throws in there. What this tells you is that the Joker really means what he says. He just wants to watch the world burn. That's what he's in it for. And here's the moment where he's done that and he's reveling in it. It's also not necessary again for the overall narrative, but it's one of those things that we remember and think about when we look back on The Dark Knight and also while we're watching it where we just feel that chill of, okay, this is a little different than your average superhero movie. Yeah, it's an amazing moment and it's so good, in fact, that I know there were a lot of people
2: like me who felt like the movie needed to end there almost. Anything after that, even though the storyline needed more to happen, certainly, I understand that, it's such a great moment. It felt like a culmination of the entire film and I just wanted the movie to go out on that. (gasps) Great note, but it does go on. The Dark Knight, obviously a very good film, and that is a great number one choice. My number one isn't going to be a surprise. You had Spielberg. We talked about him already. I had to have Spielberg as well. This, too, Josh, came from our Facebook page where multiple people noted the scene from Jaws between the father and son. Mm -hmm. This is the dinner table scene. This is right after, if I'm remembering correctly, Mrs. Kittner accuses him rightfully of contributing to her son's death by bowing to political pressure he didn't close the beach when he probably should have and her son died as a result of it and he has been called out on this fact by her in front of the entire town but it's not his embarrassment or his pride that he's worried about he's worried about the fact that he knows deep down he made the wrong decision and dinner is winding up but he's still sitting there and he's got his young son who i don't know how old he is maybe about maybe five Five or six, I'd put him at. He's fairly young there in that scene. And he's sitting adjacent to him, completely disillusioned. He's depressed, but he sees the sun start to imitate him. He drinks when his dad drinks. His hands are folded when his dad's hands are folded. And then Roy Scheider gets in on it, where he starts making funny faces at the kid as well. And that scene at the end, God, watching this scene again today, I almost started tearing up. It got a little dusty as I was watching it, where he says, give us a kiss. i need it. the sequence is great because it really lightens the mood it does make him feel better after what's probably the worst day of his life but it also underscores a couple of really interesting things the way kids follow their parents lead especially sons emulating their fathers and it begs that question what kind of a man does he want to be the kind who doesn't act on his principles who lets himself get pushed around and bad things happen as a result or is he a man of integrity it also underscores mrs Kittner's loss Right. Because here he gets to go sure. home and have dinner with his young son. And it does highlight why he's so determined to ultimately get rid of this shark. He's protecting his family. He's protecting everyone in Amity's family. So small moment, throwaway moment. So crucial to that film. And it's one that really stuck out to me when I rewatched Jaws in anticipation of our top five Spielberg scenes. I think that scene was even an honorable mention for me. And one last note about Roy Scheider, because as I've mentioned here on the show a couple times, I had an opportunity about a month or so ago now to talk to William Friedkin, who of course directed Roy Scheider in The French Connection and also in Sorcerer, where he's the the star of that film. And Friedkin tells an interesting story about how he cast Roy Scheider on the spot for The French Connection as the sidekick, the partner to Gene Hackman. Didn't even need to see him screen test, just went with his gut, saw him, said... That's my guy. I trust him. And watching those films again in anticipation of that interview, watching Jaws again, watching scenes from it, I got to say, is there more of an underrated actor out there than Roy Scheider? When you have conversations about the best actors in the 70s... His name doesn't come up. His name never comes up. But that guy is so natural on screen, never oversells a moment, always truthful. And he's a guy who really does define himself by his actions. You know, he never goes too far with an emotional moment. He just behaves on screen and is so good at it. I really do think he doesn't get enough credit.
1: Well, and he's right for Jaws too in that that character isn't meant to be the hero of that story, which a conventional version of the Killer Shark movie would Mm -hmm. need him to be. And Scheider seems... Completely comfortable with playing it that way, the correct way.
2: Is he right for Jaws 2,
1: Josh? Or I, do I you don't mean Jaws know the original? about that. <laughs> well, those are our top
2: five small moments in big movies. What about any honorable mentions?
1: Well, I talked about when we reviewed Star Trek in the Darkness, preparing to launch, Pine's little touch of kneeling down to mimic Cumberbatch. That would be one. The Avengers, we played a clip from that last week's show, I think. Sam selected Puny God. Where the Hulk suddenly just That's not a small moment. (laughs) Uh, Kind of. It's a throwaway. It doesn't need to go that way. Let's put it that way. Well, that's true. The scene could have just been more conventional. I like that little touch they give it. And the Empire Strikes Back. I couldn't select Pantheon, but this one I think is the Star Wars pick that came up more often than anything else. I love you. I know. We'll find
2: room for little moments like that. A note, too, about Jaws that kicked off the segment if you're wondering wait a second isn't jaws in the pantheon or surely at some point it was in the pantheon yes but belated we didn't put it in until episode 538 just a couple months ago when we did our top five movie posters we were really making up for lost time there's no doubt that jaws probably should have been anointed into the pantheon long before that we eventually Got it done, though, Josh. Again, those are our top five small moments in big movies. You can, of course, let us know what you thought of those lists. Let us know your picks. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net.
1: You can also leave us a voicemail, 312 or find us on Twitter at filmspotting. That's Adam. At Larson on Film, that's me. We're also at Facebook.com slash Film Spotting. And over at our website, you can find ten years of reviews,
2: marathons, and top fives in the show archives. Also at filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current film spotting poll. Your pick for best movie about a fictional novelist. Maybe you're one of those people who thinks misery is better than Kubrick's The Shining. We'll share those results along with the review of the two writers in a car movie, The End of the Tour, starring Jason Siegel as the late David Foster Wallace. Out in wide release this weekend, fantastic four with Miles Teller and Kate Mara. The Gift, a thriller directed by the actor Joel Edgerton, Jason Bateman, and Rebecca Hall star. Ricky in the Flash, Meryl Streep's latest movie. She plays a longtime rocker trying to make peace with her estranged family. Jonathan Demme directing that. And Sean, the Sheep Movie comes to us from Aardman Studios, home of the beloved Wallace and Gromit. In limited release at the Gene Siskel Film Center, The Wolf Pack is playing one of my most anticipated films of the summer that I also caught up with over the past few weeks and do recommend. I saw it. Recommend it. Oh, if you're here in Chicago, go see it at the Siskel. Dark Places is playing at the Music Box. It's an adaptation of a novel from Gone Girl scribe Gillian Flynn. It stars Charlize Theron and her Mad Max Fury Road co-star Nicholas Holt. It's also available via VOD. And Gemma Bovary, a French comedy that riffs on Flaubert's Madame Bovary along with a Lego Brickumentary, which is also available via VOD. Turns out there's a lot of stuff available this week, Josh. I do recommend Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, the new documentary about Cobain that's been available on iTunes for a little while that was directed by Brett
1: Morgan. You've been on a documentary binge.
2: I like documentaries. What can I say? Opening here in Chicago and in limited release, Best of Enemies, a documentary I recommended earlier in the show, and Cop Car, a movie about two 10-year-olds who find an abandoned police car in a field and decide to take it for a joyride Kevin Bacon stars as the unhinged cop who wants his car back. The end of the tour. Also coming out, of course, we have mentioned that is our plan to review next week on the show. And I think we may
1: be revisiting our top five movies about writers. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dessault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Our music this week is by Wilder Embry. There's more information at wilderembry.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempenar. Thanks for listening.
0: This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
1: That wasn't bad. <sighs> no, it was bad. Like mine, it comes and goes. It comes and goes. Like, <laughs> it comes It's like you're just grasping for something and yep. you just get it in your hands and then That's it, it floats away.